can continue standing if you're able to and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We will begin reading in verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Stand with a sense of honor that God has spoken to us in his word. Hear these words spoken to us today. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Let us pray. Holy Father, we thank you that you are seated on your throne. And so, Lord, as we gather here today to sing your praises, to receive your word now, may we truly behold you for who you are. Lord God, I ask now that you bless the preaching of your word so that every heart might confess that Christ is Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are aliens among us. Did you know that the Bible actually talks about aliens? And, and you know, it's kind of fitting, after all the talk that we've seen over the last couple of weeks about these government documents that have been released, right? Uh, uh, about UFOs. Well, well, there's all this talk about what was released or not released from that government document. Why is it, friends, that there is such a fascination with finding other forms of life in the galaxy, whether it's E.T. or Independence Day, uh, Transformers or Star Wars? Why is there such a fascination with these UFOs, these unidentified flying objects or aliens or other forms of life? Well, could it be that that's part of the story of who we are? And before you think I've just gone crazy and I'm drinking too much coffee this morning, let me explain. That's part of the story of who we are, how we as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are aliens. Now, let me explain. Some of your translations here in the very first verse of 1 Peter chapter 1 some of your translations have elect aliens. Now, most of our translations likely have elect exiles or elect strangers. And, and that's probably because most of the most of the time when people hear the word alien, what do they think? They think green skin. They think the government document of flying saucers or whatever. But that word has another meaning, right? Alien, a person residing in a country that's not their homeland. And so for all of those who are who have repented of their sins and are following after Jesus, that's exactly who you are. This world is not our home. We are elect aliens or we're elect exiles. And it seems like the Lord is really teaching that to the church in our country today, right now. Doesn't it feel like we're genuinely not at home anymore? You know, when we see all the changes around us, it seems like for years, if not decades, really, the, the or centuries, that the church has become complacent. 
It's become satisfied. It's become lazy. Thinking that, that this world as it is now is our final home. We have forgotten our identity as elect exiles. So friends, how can we live? How can we live our identities, our identities as elect exiles? How can we live as the people that God has called and commissioned us to be when the world around us is rapidly changing? You know, that's exactly what Peter is writing about in this letter. How do we live as God's holy and set-apart people in a world that is hostile to God? Friends, is there really a more pressing question for us than that one for us today? How do we live as God's people in an increasingly godless and hostile culture towards Christianity? Well, that's what Peter is helping us do here in this letter. And Peter, remember who Peter is. He was one of the three closest disciples to Jesus. He was the one when Jesus asked, who who do you say I am? What did Peter say? He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He was the one who boldly told Jesus that even though everybody leaves him, he will never deny him. But the night Jesus was betrayed, what happened? Peter denied him three times. He was also the one whom Jesus restored. After he rose from the dead, what did Jesus ask Peter three times? He asked him, do you love me? He was the one at Pentecost who in Acts 2 preached uh, that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, that God sent him to save us and to redeem us. And then the spirit fell and 3,000 people came to know Christ in that moment. Peter became a leader in the early church. Yet at times he still struggled greatly with understanding how the gospel applied to all of life. Think of how Paul had to rebuke him in Galatians because he was refusing to eat with Gentiles. But ultimately, Peter, who according to church history would be martyred, he would be killed for being a Christian. As church history has it, he would be crucified upside down. That's who Peter is who's writing this letter. And when you think about the context here, You see that he's writing to elect aliens, or let's just say elect exiles, so you don't think of green uh, skin with black eyes and things like that. Elect exiles of the dispersion. In other words, who is he writing to? He's writing to Christians who are scattered all about Asia Minor. Think modern-day Turkey. And, And the date in which Peter is writing this letter, it's likely in the AD 60s, possibly, very probably, uh, probable that it's possible uh, it's AD 62 or AD 63. Now, who is the emperor of Rome at that time? Some random guy by the name of Nero. Now, was Nero, what was he known for? For being a righteous man? No, no, he was known for his hostility and his persecution and ultimately his murder of Christians. However, at the time of Peter's writing in the 80s, 60s, it's likely that the empire-wide persecution has not started yet. However, locally, things are starting to get heated. Things are starting to get hostile. Uh, the, 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 the persecution that's about to happen is beginning to heat up locally. The full-blown and empire-wide persecution and martyrdom of Christians has not begun yet, but a storm is brewing. You know, think about it this way. Peter uh, is like someone when you go to the beach. I love going to the beach. And, and, and when you see a storm brewing offshore, you can see the effects of the storm, right? 
You can feel the wind. You can see the waves begin to get really choppy. You can see the white caps out to sea as the storm is brewing and moving inland. That's similar to what Peter is observing as he's standing sort of on the edge of the sea and looking out and seeing the storm of persecution brewing. In some places, it's already the waves have already begun to fall and great persecution is coming. That's similar to our day, isn't it? When you think about what's going on in our day, know the church in our country is not fully being persecuted like in other nations. But we do live in a day when you can be fired at your job for saying that marriage is between one man and one woman. You can be fired or forced off a school board for saying that men cannot be women and women cannot be men. You can be fired at your job for saying that homosexuality is wrong and sinful. And so what Peter is writing to the church in the 80s, 60s is just as important for us today. His purpose in writing is to encourage the people of God in the midst of suffering, reminding them of their true identity, of their living hope that we have because Jesus has conquered sin and death. And that hope that we have, it's a living hope. He's calling them to remain faithful in the midst of trials, to remind them that just as Christ suffered and then entered into glory, so too will his people suffer and then enter into glory as well. After suffering comes glory. And friends, think of it this way. You know, when you think of fire, fire can completely burn everything up. Uh, This past week, I I tried to cook a chicken pot pie on my smoker, and it started to burn. Uh, I I left it on too long. But fire, when it's used rightly, it cooks wonderful meals. And that's how we're to think of the suffering and the trials the fiery trials that we face in our lives, that, 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 that our trials, our hardships, our sufferings, that yes, they can burn you up. They can take you down. Or they can refine you and they can sanctify you and make you into somebody who reflects the glory of God. Who, as we just sang about, the flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. That's how we read First Peter. That's how we view the fiery trials of our lives. That just as gold must have the dross burned away to become something beautiful, the same is true of the fiery trials and hardships that we face in our lives. So that's what Peter is writing about here. To remind us of our true identity. To remind us to stand faithful in the midst of of an increasingly hostile world. Now, before we before we dive into the, the first two verses here, I, I, I want to just give you a brief overview of First Peter, sort of the structure and then a couple of, of themes. So when it comes to dividing up this letter, uh, you, you have in, in chapter one, verses one and two, you have the opening greeting. That's what we're going to dive into in a moment. And then in, in, in chapter one, verse three, all the way to chapter two, verse 10, Peter is talking about how we have a living hope as exiles. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through chapter 4, verse 11, he talks about how we live as exiles in a hostile world. And then in chapter 4, verse 12, all the way to 5, 11, how we can persevere in suffering. And then in 
the end of chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, he has some concluding words. A couple of major themes to just keep in mind as well. I've got five of them. There's a lot more that we could cover, but I just want to make you aware of. You probably won't even have time to write them all down. But just to make you aware of, I get this from one of my uh, professors at, at, at my seminary, Tom Schreiner. He, he has these major themes. He says, suffering leads to exaltation or suffering leads to glory. Another theme is that the church of Jesus Christ is the new temple, the new Israel, the new people of God. A third theme is that believers should set their hope on their end-time inheritance, on our identity for who we will be for all eternity. A fourth theme is that Christ died as a substitute for sinners, and Jesus' death and resurrection is the basis of our new life. And then five, Christ's suffering also serves as an example for his followers. So in other words, Christ suffered. You also will suffer. So what we're going to cover today is just these first two verses. Uh, Let's look at, you you see Peter's greeting there. He packs a whole lot into that small greeting, doesn't he? This is an apostle of Jesus Christ, so those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, greetings, uh, greeting cards especially, it's a big business in the United States today, isn't it? Uh, You think about all the money that's spent on greeting cards, whether it's Valentine's Day, Christmas, uh, birthday, wedding, anniversary, Teacher's Appreciation Day, you name it, there's likely a pre-made card available. People spend millions of dollars for greeting cards, for a greeting card that's just going to end up in the trash. But in the biblical letters, the greetings of each and every one of these letters are really meant to be something. They really meant something. Look what Peter says. He says that he is an apostle. Not just any apostle, but an apostle of Jesus Christ. That word apostle literally means sent. But here, attached to apostle of Jesus Christ, he's using the technical sense of the word. Because in the early church, the office of apostle were those uh, whom Jesus himself had set aside to be his authoritative messengers. And that's important for us. Because what, what Peter is writing here is not simply just advice to some people, but it's an authoritative message to the church from the Lord Jesus Christ. You also see that this this greeting is a Trinitarian greeting, right? You see in verse 2, foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Wait a minute. I, I thought the Trinity was something the early church just created at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325 or at Constantinople. No, 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 no. That's what skeptics say about Christianity is that the Trinity was created at the Council of Nicaea. No, no, no. We see that the early church got their doctrine of the Trinity directly from the Bible. No, Peter doesn't give a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity here, but here we do see as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So he has a trinity here in his greeting. And now we see, who is it that he's writing to? 
written to elect exiles of the dispersion. Those three words are incredibly important. Elect, exiles, dispersion. Those three words are really key to understanding the themes that Peter is going to unpack in the rest of his letter. Remember, Peter is writing to encourage God's people who are facing hardships in this world and to remind them that this is not their final home. So let's unpack these words. First of all, elect. Uh, I, I remember when in our church circles, election and how to understand election and predestination, reform theology, Calvinism, Arminianism, that's what we used to, that's what we used to fight over. But now it seems like we like to fight over just about everything else. Now, the word elect literally means chosen. And, and you see that throughout the Old Testament, that, that God chose Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel was called God's chosen people, elect people. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 37, Moses is writing there and he's saying, and because he, God, loved you, he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of the land of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. In other words, he's saying, God chose your fathers and he chose you to be his people and he delivered you out of Egypt. Now, in the New Testament, the church, those who place their faith in Christ, who become a part of his body, they are those whom God has chosen. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ are God's chosen, or we say elect people. Also, we see that word exiles. Now, the word elect, it, it actually modifies exiles, which means they're meant to be read together. You can't separate the two. Chosen exiles, elect exiles. We are God's chosen exiles, strangers, uh, pilgrims here on earth. You know, think of Pilgrim's Progress, a great allegory by John Bunyan. Christian, well, what, is, what is he in that story? He is a pilgrim traveling through the world on his way to the celestial city. That's us. We are pilgrims, chosen pilgrims traveling through this world to our final home. Now it seems that the church in America has lost that identity. That this world, and in particular, this nation, is not our final home. The United States, as great and as awesome of a nation as it is, it's not the new heavens and it's not the new earth. Our ultimate allegiance is to Christ and to His kingdom. Not the kingdoms or the nations of this world. Look, friends, I, I love, I love this country. I'm so thankful for the freedoms that, that we have. Uh, I'm so thankful for the countless men and, and women who have laid down their lives for our unalienable rights, who've given their lives physically, and also many who've given their lives mentally to protect this country and to protect our constitution. Uh, I, I love this country. There's a reason why I'm wearing a red, white, and blue tie on Independence Day. There's a reason why my son's wearing a Captain America shirt on Independence Day. We, we love this country. We're thankful for the blessings that we have, that God has blessed us with in this nation. But this country is not my final home. Nor, nor is it yours if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus. And, and, and we, ha we need to understand that that, that you have more in common with someone who lives in 
Iran and has placed their faith in Christ and doesn't look like you, doesn't speak like you, doesn't talk like you. You have someone, you have something more in common with those in Iran who place their faith in Christ than someone who's an American citizen that looks like you, talks like you, and votes like you. As Paul writes in Philippians 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And that's a common teaching all throughout the New Testament that Christians, we live here as aliens, as exiles, and our ultimate citizenship is with God in heaven. Have you lost that identity? Again, I, I, I say this as somebody who loves this country and, and, and loves this nation. I mean, this morning we were playing God Bless America. We were playing Made in America. I'm not going to tell you who it was written by because I'm not endorsing all that person sings about. And I get teared up when I hear those patriotic songs. Or I get here, teared up when someone sings a beautiful version of God Bless America or the Star Spangled Banner. But this world, this nation as it is now, is not our final home. And we can't live and act as if that is the case. I can think I, I think you can love God ultimately and also love your nation at the same time. I'm not saying you can't do one or the other. It's not a both, it's not an either or. But I'll be honest, I've been so discouraged by so many professing Christians who make it seem like this world is their final home. Who who make it seem as if politics is ultimate. And they go to great lengths to defend unrighteous and ungodly behavior of politicians all because they voted for that person. And friends, I'll be honest, I hear so many young people today who grew up in the church questioning if what they were taught that morality and character matters, that if the adults who taught them that were saying that simply for political or powerful reasons. Many younger people are disillusioned with the church because they cannot understand how the same ones who taught them, Matthew 5 or 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They can't understand how they are the same ones who are defending politicians who use women and boast about it. Lord, have mercy upon us. Maybe we're getting today, or rather God is giving us exactly what we ultimately wanted. I mean, can you imagine Peter or Paul defending Nero because he was a strong leader who got things done? But I say all this, don't lose your identity in Christ as God's chosen exiles. Live faithfully for the Lord here, laboring for him. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Think about how your interactions, the way you treat or the way you demean other people, other image bearers, can help or harm your witness for Christ. Don't lose your identity as an elect exile. This world is not our final home. So elect exiles of the dispersion. Dispersion literally means scattered. So yes, they are the chosen people of God scattered all throughout the world. So elect exiles of the dispersion. But now we see the work, as we move on to verse 2, the work of the triune God in salvation. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge of God the Father. So we are God's chosen or God's elect exiles according to 
the foreknowledge of God the Father. What is the basis of our being chosen? What is the basis of our being elect? Why did God choose you for his own? Or another way to ask it, how did we come to believe and be saved? Well, Peter's answer here is is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God foreknew me. We are elect, we are chosen according to God's foreknowledge. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that I chose myself and that God looked down the the halls of time and he saw that? He saw my self-election and then chose me? Is that what foreknowledge is? Well, there are some who think so, who think that to be the case. But it doesn't seem to be what Scripture explicitly teaches. This doctrine here of God's foreknowledge causes many people to be squeamish and uncomfortable. I think some of you may have gotten shorter as I'm speaking right now and shrunk down in your seat. But, but, but stick with me. This is an incredibly important doctrine. And, and I'll say this. We need doctrine. We need teaching. And at times we need to dive down deeper into theology and into doctrine. We need doctrine and we need teaching. I heard one pastor put it this way. Could it be that one of the reasons the church is so weak today is because we're constantly trying to skip over doctrine, especially some of these harder to grasp truths? Maybe we're meant to be strong in faith and in love and hope and joy and serving and loving one another, not in spite of doctrine, but because of doctrine. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to dive down a little bit deeper into this teaching and stick with me. Now, some take foreknowledge to mean that God looked down the halls of time and he saw that I chose him, that, that God sees what is going to happen in the future. And so he foreknows or, or he foresees and chooses you on the basis of what he foresees. Now, let me just say, if you think that way, that's fine. And I love you. Uh, you're not my enemy. Uh, We can disagree and we can be friends. You know, you can disagree with people and you can still be friends with them. And we can still love each other. We can still labor for Christ together. But I want to convince you that foreknowledge is more than that. Because God looking down the halls of time and seeing you choose him, that sounds more like foresight than foreknowledge. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Paul uses the same word. He says, For those, here, I'll I'll give you some time to turn there. Romans 8, verse 29. Paul is writing, he says, chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, for what purpose? To be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn, among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So Paul is saying that those whom God foreknew what? He justified. Those whom he predestined, he had called. So if God's foreknowledge was simply just foresight, in other words, him looking down the halls of time, seeing your future, then really he foreknows everybody, right? But Paul is saying here that foreknowledge means that you are called, that you are justified, that you are glorified. So if foreknowledge 
if he really foreknows everybody, then everybody would be saved. But not everyone is saved. Those whom he foreknew, he called, he justified, he glorified. Are you following with me? So what we see here are there are specific chosen people of God that as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 that God chose before the foundations of the world and he predestined them for adoption. This foreknowledge seems to be more than just foreseeing because knowledge in the Bible means an intimate relationship. Now I'll say this, from evangelistic perspective, this does not change the way we evangelize because we don't know who they are, right? We have to understand, we're trying to, to understand from the mind of God, right? We have finite minds, we're trying to understand the infinite. We can't look at somebody and say, oh yes, they have been foreknown by the Lord. No, no, no. Now when it comes to this teaching and this doctrine, some get worried and, and they begin to, to, to question, what if God doesn't want me? What if God hasn't chosen me? I'll say, if that is something that you genuinely struggle with, that asking that question of, what if God hasn't chosen me? Then I think you're in a good place. Because I believe that's evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life and opening your eyes and drawing you to himself so that you might place your faith in Christ and receive the gift of eternal life. Friends, this doctrine that Peter is writing about here, this foreknowledge of God, it should be an incredibly comforting doctrine. Yes, I understand, friends, that, 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 that we, don't, we don't fully understand the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. I believe that God is sovereign and I believe man is responsible and we must place our faith in Christ. How does that completely and fully and finally work itself out? I think that's a bit of a mystery. But the doctrine of election should be a comfort to God's people. Because think about it this way. Your whole life is shaped by God's love, his affection that was set upon you before the foundation of the world was set. And that means that everything that's going on in your life, or think about it in the lives that, uh, of the people that Peter is writing to, the trials, the persecutions, the hardships, the, the martyrs that are taking place, that's all happening according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. So this doctrine of election should be a comfort to God's people. And again, I just want to say, if you don't have to think about it exactly the same way that I explained it here, I understand that there is lots of debate about this issue for hundreds of years throughout church history. You don't have to see or you don't have to foresee with me eye to eye. But ultimately, this doctrine is meant to be a comfort to God's people, that he is refining us and that he is making us more and more obedient to Jesus. Friends, think about the comfort that it brings. Because your faith is in Jesus, who conquered sin and death. There is nothing that you can do to lose the love of God if your faith in him is genuine. It's meant to be a comfort to us. But it's also meant to be a motivation for evangelism. 
So it's a comfort, but it's also meant to motivate us. How is it that countless missionaries can go to the ends of the earth, be subject to all kinds of awful diseases, bugs, famines, all kinds of awful conditions and suffer and die? How? Because they believe that God has foreknown a people from every tribe and tongue and nation who are going to gather before the throne of Christ, as we see in Revelation 7, 9, because there are going to be people from every nation standing there singing the praises of the Lamb who was slain. How is it that they can leave behind friends and family and comforts of home to die among a people who have never heard the name of Jesus? The motivation was God's foreknowledge. You go back and you read some of the greatest leaders of, of modern missions movement, like Adoniram Judson and, and, and Hudson Taylor. They all believed that God is sovereign in salvation. And that is what motivated them to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. This should be a motivation for evangelism in our daily lives, because think about this, friends. When we share the gospel, when we proclaim the gospel, the results are not dependent on us. It's not dependent on our skill, but dependent on the God who saves. Again, I understand that this is a deep doctrine, right? That this is a deep teaching. How do we reconcile God's responsibility, uh, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? I don't know if there's an ultimate way we can. But we can have faith. We can have comfort. And we can be motivated to share our faith because God has chosen the people for himself. And again, I'll say, if you are struggling with that thought of, well, how do I, how do I know if, if God has chosen me? I'll ask you, is your faith in Jesus? Is he your only hope in life or death? If the answer is yes, then you are one of his followers. You are a part of his Still with me? Just don't send me any emails. Talk to me in person. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. If you have a genuine question about this, I would love to dive deeper into it. You can send me an email if you would like to, but I'd rather talk about it in person. So, the foreknowledge of God the Father. That was a lot. Let's move on. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, has set us apart. When we come to saving faith in Christ, the Spirit indwells us, makes us alive, dwells within us, and makes us holy in our standing before God as we grow in holiness and Christ-likeness. So in the sanctification of the Spirit means that the Spirit has sanctified us, made us holy before God, and yet at the same time is working in us to make us more and more like Jesus. He goes on, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. When we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, we are obeying his voice, calling us to come and follow him. We also see the sprinkling with his blood. In other words, what, what Peter is referring to there is the atonement that Jesus has made on our behalf. His atoning work on the cross, where all my sins are washed away. In the Old Testament, there were in their sacrifices, they would take the blood from the sacrifices and sprinkle them on the altar, showing that the punishment had been paid for their sins. Friends, because we've all sinned against God, our sins have separated us from God. And what we need is 
atonement. An atoning payment needs to be made. So atonement means literally, it, it means to pay the price, to make two, one. A price must be paid to bring us back into right relationship to restore that breach that's been made. And so Peter is reminding the people here that price was Jesus' blood, as we're about to observe in the Lord's Supper. The price to bring the two, one together, to bring us at one with each other, that price was the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood that was shed on our behalf. So that we who are separated from God can now be brought back into right relationship. And Jesus has paid that price. He has, prayed, he has paid that price for you. So that you might be saved from your sins. His sacrifice has been given for you. And will you not respond in faith to that, to that sacrifice that was made for you? Jesus, in John chapter 6, verse 37, says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What incredible words. All that God the Father has given to Jesus will come to him. And whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. Friend, do you hear his voice calling to you today through his word? Respond in faith and follow after him. So as the world talks about aliens, we know that at least they do understand something about the larger story of who we are. That we are elect exiles. And that this world is not our final home. So brothers and sisters, let's endure hardship. Let's endure suffering. Let's endure hostility. Living as elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. Let's pray. Father, we come before You now. And Lord God, we thank you for your great love that you have poured out for us. But we don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve to know you. And out of your kindness and your mercy and your grace to us, you sent your one and only son to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, and to rise from the dead. So that we who were separated from you could become one with you. So that our relationship would be restored. So that you would adopt us into your very own family. Lord, may we not lose our identity as your chosen exiles here on earth. May we seek to love our neighbor and even love uh, our, our, the country you've put us in despite its shortcomings. But Lord, may we love and serve you ultimately. Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for our sins so that we could be brought into right relationship with you.
And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.